Hope your thinking caps are on this evening because you're going to need them. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews 3. God's house, God's people, God's rest. Today we step into Hebrews 3 and with it into a new phase in Paul's overall argument in the book. And as we do so, it is important that we stop, we step back, we gain a measure of interpretive perspective as it relates to the broader framework, the broader argument of these verses. Then once we have a bit of a handle on our interpretive framework, it'll be easier for us to step into the nitty-gritty of the text without losing its flow or without having to pause too regularly in order to give caveats or to explain something. So because of that, this message is going to be somewhat unique. As uh, I intend to do over the next few weeks, I'm going to uh, preach verse by verse through Hebrews chapters 3 and 4. But tonight, as you can see from the, the range that I'm giving you here, Hebrews 3 through 4, 11, I'm going to preach a broader message, a summary message, a message that is intended actually to tell you what the text is not saying with a little bit into what the text is saying so that then when I teach the fullness of what the text is saying, I don't have to stop all the time and tell you what it's not saying and, and try to, to, to teach you intermittently about what the text is not saying. So we're going to walk through this. And in a way, I would like you to think about how to interpret this. I've been doing this a little bit more lately, where what I do is I walk you through my thinking as I'm studying it, and how it is that we might try to cover all of the angles of studying a text, and then come to a conclusion based upon comparing Scripture with Scripture, thinking through what, what God says and what He doesn't say, uh, checking our assumptions at the door, and then coming to a conclusion based upon um, all of these things through an interpretive lens by which I will view the text. And then, as I said, we'll walk through the text more slowly over the next several weeks. So what I'd like to do, first off, is read to you Hebrews 3, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read all the way through Hebrews 4, verse 11. So bear with me. We've got a little bit of reading to do. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle, and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the, day of, uh, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation and said, they do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end while it is said today. 
If you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses, but with whom he was, well, uh, was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were, were not finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief, again he limiteth a certain day, saying to, in David, today after so long a time, as it is said, today if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Okay, I know that was long. It was packed full. We're not going to unpack it all this evening. But, but what I want to do is walk through the broader narrative of what is being said here, and then, as I mentioned, we'll uh, discuss the interpretive framework by which we approach these truths and dig into the nitty-gritty beginning next week. And we begin by seeing that Paul is writing to the holy brethren. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22 tell us that believers have been reconciled in the body of Christ's flesh through death to be presented unto God as holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. To this end, we would understand that as Paul calls these readers holy brethren, he is speaking to those who he fully understands and believes to be Christians, believers, those that have a hope of a heavenly home. This would also co correspond most clearly to the larger purpose of the book, as we understand from our book sermon, that Paul is writing to believers, and he's writing to believers specifically to call them unto obedience and faith. So what we would not expect here is that Paul is writing to these people doubting their salvation or writing to a people that he does not necessarily know are saved. He is fully anticipating that the people he's talking to are saved. How do we know that? Because right at the beginning of chapter 3, he calls them holy brethren who are partakers of the heavenly calling. And in much the same vein as chapters 1 and 2, Paul enters chapter 3 speaking about Christ as one who has built a house and was faithful as Moses was faithful over that house. Only greater than Moses because Moses was a servant over a house that God had given to him and Jesus is a son who built the house himself. Greater in the same way that the man who builds the house is greater than the man who stewards the house. And this leads us right into our first moment of controversy. The things that I want to talk about as it relates to Hebrews 3 and 4 the question being, what is Jesus uh, and Paul, uh, by, by, by proxy of Paul writing it, trying to say to us 
In Hebrews chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, we read this. And Moses was, verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope, firm unto the end. Now, the phrase I want you to take note of is that phrase that's highlighted there, if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope, firm unto the end. Paul says that we are the house of Christ if we hold fast. Now, when we talk about the conditional statements, not all conditional statements in the Bible, or in English for that matter, are made equal. There are any number of times where the ifs in our Bibles, very similar to the ifs in English, aren't, are, are, are what we might call a soft conditional, or aren't so much a conditional as they are reflecting reality through a conditional statement. Uh, similar to if, I were, if it were raining outside, under the scenario that it's raining outside, and I say, well, if it's raining outside, I guess we're not going to have a picnic today. I am using the conditional statement if, right? And then I am stating something after that. We are not going to go on a picnic today. But I'm using it in a manner that is more effectively a statement of reality than a statement of condition because it is raining outside. And so I use a conditional statement to state something that is already true. If it's raining outside, then I guess we're not going to have our picnic today. And oftentimes we see this in the scriptures where the weight of a conditional statement is actually what I'd call a soft condition. It weighs more like a since than an if. Since it's raining outside, we're not going to have a picnic today, even though I use the conditional statement if. Say, well, pastor, is this one of those times where, where that happens? It's not. Boy, it would make it a lot easier if it was, but it's not. It's not one of those. So then there are times where the conditional statement is clear, right? It's raining outside, and I say, if it stops raining, then we can have a picnic. And it's raining outside right now, so this is a true conditional. If it stops raining, we will have our picnic. Here we have a true conditional. So we don't get to use that excuse, right? We don't get to say, well, this is a soft conditional since. Uh, Paul is assuming that these people have already uh, um, held fast and are going to hold fast. No, we have a true if statement here. So, so we, don't, we don't get that bailout. It is truly saying that we will be Christ's house if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. So as I'm studying the text, I have to kick that one out. I can't use that. And this puts us into a bit of an interpretively sticky place, right? Because it means that if I don't hold fast to a measure of confidence, if I don't hold fast to a rejoicing until the end, then I fall short of being Christ's house. And I have to wrestle with this because we can't just let this stuff go. We can't just pretend it's not in our Bible. We can, but that's not a good way to go, is it? Because if we do that, we're being dishonest with ourselves. We're being dishonest with the text. We're being dishonest. I'm being dishonest with you. So we can't do that. And it's not just this one statement, is it? Paul goes on to carry the comparison of Moses and Christ into another period of Old Testament history. When they tempted God in the wilderness. So first speaking of Moses, and now when they tempted God in the wilderness, which was still in the time of Moses, and that primarily, as we see in the text, as I walk through the text, the time that God is referencing and that Paul is referencing here of tempting God in the wilderness was when they refused to enter into God's rest. That would be when they refused to enter into the promised land. We see this very early on 
in the journeys, right? They go to the Mount Sinai, they get the Ten Commandments, and then they move immediately up to the, to the land of Canaan, where they are on the doorstep of Canaan, and they send in 12 spies, and the 12 come back, and they say the land is everything that it's supposed to be, but there are giants in the land, and there are walls in the land, and there are chariots in the land, and 10 of them say, we need to go back to Egypt, and two of them say, no, we need to fight, we need to go in, God has given us this land, and the people side with the 10, and they say, we should never have done this, we want to go back to Egypt, and so God thus tells them that everybody except for those two spies will wander in the wilderness for 40 years until they all die out in the wilderness and the next generation will inherit the land. That's that day of tempting that we see spoken of here. We'll get more into that. We'll actually go into that text in future messages. We're not going into that text today. So Paul carries this uh, comparison of Moses and Christ into this period of history. God swore that none of that generation, save Caleb and Joshua, those two good spies, would enter into the rest of the promised land. You with me? After which we receive this exhortation in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Take heed, brethren, lest there be any of you, in any of you, an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. No, nope, you're not seeing it. There we go. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you being hardened through the deceitfulness of sin for we are made partakers of Christ, here it is again, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Here we see it again. Is this one a soft condition, Pastor? It's not. It's not. And that means that we are not made partakers of Christ if we fail to hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Are you beginning to get nervous yet? Allow me to continue to make you uncomfortable. Verses 19 of chapter 3 through chapter 4, verse 1. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. So we're told to fear, lest we come short of the promises that God has given that we should enter into his rest in the same way that the nation of Israel came short of the rest that they were promised, in that not but two of the entire nation of Israel entered into the promised land from that first generation. Paul then gives several Old Testament scriptures regarding God's promises of rest. He says on the seventh day, God rested from all of his labors. So he uses the Sabbath, the, the seventh day of rest. Again, speaking of Israel, who were told of a rest of which they would not receive because they lacked faith. And then of David, who though David was in the promised land, he was in the land of Canaan, and not just in the land of Canaan, but he was uh, given rest from all of his enemies on every side, right? As we read about in 2 Samuel 7. Yet God says that there would yet be a future rest, that he had not fully entered into God's rest, that rest was still a future context even in David's day showing that the Old Testament rest in question, that promise of, uh, by God to the nation that they would enter into rest was not simply entering into the promised land, was not simply living in the promised land, but rather the promised land was a metaphor for a greater, deeper, more transcendent rest intended for the people of God. And then we're exhorted in verse 11. Let us labor Therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Labor to enter into that rest. 
lest we fall after that same example. That would be the example of the first generation to leave Egypt, right? The generation that made it to the door of the promised land and then did not have the faith to enter in, and so they were rebuffed, and they all died in the wilderness, and their children are the ones that entered in. Okay, so let's deal with this. And let me present the limitations of our time together today. Today, I'm not going to tell you everything about what this whole passage means. I don't have time to do that. I'm going to be spending more time telling you what it does not mean today and then giving you a broad understanding of why it does not mean that through the broader meaning of what the text is saying. And then we'll get into the nitty-gritty over the next several weeks. And as we've said so many times in relation to interpretation, we want to be honest with the text and careful with the context. We always attempt to allow what is clear in the scripture to inform us about what is not clear. We always attempt to allow the context to speak for itself. And we are careful not to allow assumptions or inferences to override what the text is actually saying. And we have a, a, a bad um, habit of doing this as Christians where we take a text and we extend it beyond what it actually says, because we get stuff stuck in our minds. Sometimes that stuff stuck in our minds is because we saw a flannel graph when we were in Sunday school, and, and we got something in our heads about what something looked like because we saw it, and it was there. I mean, it's there in living color, when in fact that's an artist's rendition of something, right? And so it can go all the way back that far that we assume something because it gets stuck in our mind. One of the big ones is, how old was Isaac when Abraham offered him on that, on that altar? Uh, we see him as this little five-year-old boy. Very unlikely that he was a little five-year-old boy, right? We're probably talking about at least a teenager, if not a full-size adult. That changes some things about how we understand that account. But we kind of get things in our mind. And, and I'm not just blaming flannel grass. Please don't get me wrong. But what I'm saying is we have all of these reasons why, right? We can get stuff stuck in our heads, and those become preconceived or, 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 or um, predetermined assumptions when we enter certain texts. And in this particular text, what has not helped Christians over the years is hymns. I'll tell you why in a little bit. So... Let's consider this carefully. The doctrine that we will be wrestling with here is not so much the doctrine of salvation itself, but rather the doctrine that we call eternal security. When a person is born again by grace through faith, can he lose that salvation? So when we step into this passage, we seek to understand its implications through three, there are basically three interpretive tracks that we can follow. Track number one, we can say that the text is warning these followers of Jesus in the church that they can, through a series of choices, lose a salvation that they had already gained. Right? That's track number one. That they believed they are holy brethren, they are partakers of the heavenly calling, and yet they can fall short through unbelief if they do not persevere until the end. Track number one. Track number two. We can say that Paul is warning those in the church who are pretending to be believers but aren't actually believers that even though they are associating with the church, they may in fact fall short of salvation because they have not themselves accepted the gift and so they fall short because they have not actually, their faith has not actually borne out unto the end because the faith will bear out to the end in those who are actually believers. That's track number two. Track number three. 
we can say that Paul isn't talking about salvation at all, but rather something else entirely. Okay, so track one, you can lose your salvation. Track two, he's warning people who were never saved to begin with. Track three, Paul is talking about something else altogether than going to heaven. And we know that eternal security is the issue at play, again, because Paul called them holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. These are they who are holy in Christ. They are a part of God's heavenly calling, a word used to speak of being a part of the, what the Bible calls God's elect. So that in 2 Timothy chapter, two, uh, chapter 1, verse 9, excuse me, Paul writes of Timothy saying this, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. So Timothy and Paul were saved and called with an holy calling. And this is the same description of those whom Paul is writing to in Hebrews 3. To that end, it would, it's very hard for me interpretively to think that Paul is not expecting these people to be believers. And if Paul is writing, he is not writing to warn unbelievers here because he specifically said, holy brethren. That's who he's talking to. Are there unbelievers among the group that's reading this uh, in, in Paul's day? Probably. But is that who he's writing to? I, I don't see it. That doesn't make sense. And that puts a real damper on the idea of track two, right? That Paul is writing to a, uh, people who are pretending to be believers, but who actually aren't believers, and telling them that they, and warning them that if they don't get right, that they're going to die and go to hell because they're not believers. That, that puts a real damper on that one. This idea, this, this track number two, where Paul might be warning people who aren't believers that they need to get saved or, uh, and, and thus enter into this because they're pretending to be believers but aren't. This is the common argument of people that believe in eternal security but don't know what to do with a passage like this, right? Paul is not actually talking about losing your salvation. He's talking about people who were never saved to begin with, that, that he's warning people who will fall short of entering into salvation, not fall short of maintaining their salvation. And as I've already explained a little bit, that's why I, I jumped ahead a little bit in my mind and I didn't jump ahead in my notes. You already, you, you see why this feels so insufficient to me. Why track two explanation feels so insufficient to me. We don't believe that a man must labor to enter into salvation at all, first off, right? And so the idea that you must labor to enter into this rest and so he's calling these people in track two who are unbelievers, pretending to be believers or thinking they're believers but aren't, to labor to enter into that rest doesn't make sense anyway. But then on top of that, Paul is not talking to them. He's talking to the holy brethren. He's talking to believers. So in my mind, that sets track two aside rather quickly. It doesn't make much sense. And so I'm left with two possibilities. Either Paul is warning about being able to lose your salvation if you do not labor until the end, or Paul is talking about something else entirely. So now I wrestle with these two possibilities. This is how I study this, right? And because we believe in eternal security, I am naturally predisposed to believe that Paul is speaking about something else entirely. Why? Because I use what is clear to interpret what is not clear. And I see any number of uh, passages in scripture as it relates to eternal security that give me a strong uh, 
compulsion to believe that once I am in Christ, I am safe, kept in grace. But if I'm honest with myself, this only works as an interpretation if my interpretation works with the text, right? I can't just shoehorn eternal security into a text that is teaching that I can lose my salvation. And I do myself a disservice if I lie about what the text could mean in order to make it fit a meaning that makes me sleep better at night. And if the text simply cannot reconcile with my understanding of eternal security, if my understanding of eternal security and the text cannot find a place to meet, well, then I need to rethink my understanding of eternal security. Fortunately for us, that's not the case here. Paul is quite clearly speaking of something entirely different than salvation. Let's find out why by walking through the text yet again. Paul is making a comparison between Moses and Jesus here, that they were both faithful over their house, the house that they had, Jesus being greater because he was more faithful, and that not simply over the house as a steward, but rather over a house that he himself had built. And then Paul says, whose house we are. And the question that we ask, and this is one of those fundamental assumptions that we make and we just move on, but we need to ask the question, what does it mean that we are his house? Well, the word house in the Bible doesn't just speak of a structure. It speaks of a household, a family. If someone asked me to describe my house, they would be asking me to speak of my family members. This is the house of Wickler, right? The house of Wickler is not the, the wood and the siding and the shingles. The house of Wickler is my family. Well, such could be the case here, that we are a part of the household of God as we hold fast to the confidence, rejoicing, and hope of Christ firm until the end. Now, the simple thought would be everyone who is a believer is the house of Christ. That's the simple thought. That's the assumption that we make. Everyone who is a believer is the house of Christ. And that's a bit too simplistic when we compare Scripture with Scripture because we find any number of times when among those who are called followers of Christ, there is a familial distinction made between those who are and are not living up to the name by which they are called. So Jesus says in Matthew 5, verses 44 and 45, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Notice verse 45, that ye may be the children of your father, which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. Jesus says that by loving our enemies, we may be children of our father, which is in heaven. Now, does this imply that if I do not love my enemy, I am not a saved child of God? Well, it cannot. It does not. Not to imply that those who do not obey this direct command are not saved. For indeed, if this burden is one which no man can bear. But rather, they are not acting like children, right? They're not acting like children. They are not acting like the, the, the family that they are in. They're not bearing their father's name well. Jesus was talking to his disciples in John 15. And verse 8, he says, Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. Connecting 
being a disciple to bearing the fruit of abiding in Christ? Does that mean that if I fail to abide in Christ, I am no longer a follower of Christ? Well, I'm not acting like a follower of Christ. My, 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 My reflection of discipleship is inferior. A similar concept found in 1 John. 1 John 2, verses 4 through 6. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith, he abideth in him, ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. Those who abide in Christ ought to walk as Christ walked. Those who are in Christ ought to abide in Christ. If I don't keep his commandments, I'm a liar, and the truth is not in me. Does that mean I'm not saved? From 1 John, we know that that's not true. We know that that's not what John is talking about in 1 John. So we see then the possibility that there is a distinction between those who are saved by grace through faith and those who are acting like it, who are the children of God in the truest sense by properly reflecting the commands, who are children of their father, as Matthew 5 says, who are his disciples, as John 15, 8 says, who know him, as 1 John says. Or, do all of these things simply prove that if I'm not sinlessly perfect, I'm going to lose my salvation? Well, as it relates to the text, we don't really know. All I did there, all of that was just to tell you that there's an interpretive possibility that being the house of Christ does not definitively mean being saved. So we have that first of all right? We have the interpretive possibility that I can be saved and on my way to heaven while not necessarily reflecting the fullest ideals of Christ's house. We, so, so what I did is I sought to give you the, the interpretive possibility that when the Bible says that... Um, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing, hope firm unto the end. Being the house of Christ is not necessarily synonymous with being saved. Can we know what, it, what, what Paul is talking about? Can we know whether or not this is what Paul is saying or is it just left for our ambiguity and then we have to use other scriptures to fill in the gaps? No, our text actually does give us clarity and, and it gives us clarity somewhat quickly. Because God begins to speak about the day of temptation, right? When God swore in his wrath that the nation would not enter into his rest. And Paul would go on to say that we should beware ourselves lest we harden our own hearts and so fail to hold our confidence steadfast into the end, fall into the deceitfulness of sin, and so fall short of Christ's rest. You can see here that this is one argument, right? So that as Paul warns against failing to be the house of Christ... It is the same warning as falling short of his rest. Contextually, can we agree with that? That the idea here in in verse 6, that Christ is a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast, that this same warning, if we hold fast, is seen in the context of entering into Christ's rest, so that entering into Christ's rest is synonymous with being the house of Christ. Both of these warnings saying we will, we will enter into Christ's rest. We are the house of Christ if we hold fast, if we maintain this devotion until the end. 
Well, now we are on good footing. Because now, if we can understand the nature of Paul's illustration as to that day of temptation in the wilderness, then we can understand better the context of being Christ's house. And we see this statement that says that they came short of entering into God's rest because they did not believe. Well, this seems pretty clear. They didn't believe enough, so they didn't accept the promised land. So God made them wander in the wilderness where they died. And if I don't believe enough, I fall short of confidence, rejoicing, and hope. That's the warnings here, right? Then I, though I am at this moment, as I'm reading this, called a holy brethren and partaker of the heavenly calling, I will fall short of, well, of what? Of heaven? Is that the rest? Is that the house? Is that the thing that I'm being warned against falling short of? There's a really big assumption made just there. If I say heaven, there's a really big assumption made. I just said, those who fall short of this faith will fall short of heaven. Is heaven ever mentioned in this text? Is being born again ever mentioned in this text? We see the word belief. Salvation from penalty of sin is not ever mentioned in this text. The picture is of, a, of the nation of Israel entering into the promised land, refusing to enter into that land, and that picture is being equated with entering into rest. And this rest corresponds to the rest that the believer can enter into. And it is this rest that is being warned about. It is this rest that, it, that makes us a part of the house of God. It is this rest that we are being called not to fall short of entering into. So the question is, what is this rest? And so I'm still in interpretive possibility land, right? I've kind of negated the second track, right? Because we're talking to believers. But I can still, okay, so if the rest is heaven, then I can lose my salvation. Or is the rest something else entirely? And this is where our hymns get involved. Because when I sing about crossing over the Jordan, and when I sing about these things, what, what am I singing about? I'm singing about the day when my life ends and I get to pass into heaven. And I get to go to my heavenly home. But here's the problem. That's not what the Bible pictures when the Bible pictures Canaan. The promised land is not a picture of heaven. Let's think about this practically. Canaan was a land of promise, flowing with milk and honey. That sounds pretty good. But it was also a land inhabited by enemies, walls, chariots. It was a land where these enemies would be driven out before them. That sounds pretty good. But it was a land where they would have to engage in battles in order for those enemies to be driven out. Does any of that sound like heaven to you? Is heaven going to be a place of assured victories by faith, but where the battles must still be fought? That's not heaven. That's not what the Bible says heaven is. What would that equate to more in the Christian life? That equates more to victorious Christian living, does it not? 
that I am called out of Egypt and I am directed toward a promised land, a place where there is milk and honey, but where there are walls, where there are enemies, and I have to have the faith to go and to fight and to take that mountain and to watch those walls fall. Living in a land of enemies, but where we are more than conquerors. Having enemies on every side, but the gates of hell not being able to prevail. And when I fall short of faithfulness, I reap those consequences in my life, in my family, in my community, through the enemies finding a way back in. So practically speaking, the idea that the promised land is heaven doesn't really metaphorically add up. Well, what about doctrinally speaking, right? That's practical. Well, pastor, we can go practical all day, right? I can take any metaphor in the Bible and say, well, I can nitpick it to pieces and it doesn't really add up. What about doctrinally? Well, the Bible gives us this answer too. Notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 12. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters, as some of them, uh, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them for ensamples or examples. And they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Paul here uses New Testament language to describe the nature, excuse me, uh, yeah, New Testament language to describe the nature of Israel's Old Testament journey. And the thing which Paul equates with salvation, did you catch it? Baptism of the Spirit at the moment of belief was when they passed through the Red Sea. They were baptized unto Moses through the cloud and through the sea. That's the moment that Paul is equating with salvation. When they left Egypt, they passed through the Red Sea. That was the moment of faith. That was the baptism. And on the other side of the Red Sea, they had passed through. They were now out of Egypt. They were no longer a part of the old system, the old way, the old country. They were through. And then after that, they were sustained by spiritual meat and spiritual drink. And so having been baptized in the sea by staying dry, incidentally, so we know it's not talking about a water baptism type thing, right? They were baptized in the sea, but they were baptized in the sea by staying dry. Uh, the Egyptians got, got the wet end of things. And the warning here, baptized, brought through, then sustained in the wilderness, the warning here is similar to the one in Hebrews. Paul writes to believers and he says, don't be overthrown by sin. And then he gives all of the, one, the examples of, of them wandering in the wilderness. Consider then the picture of the Exodus with me. As Paul describes it, the picture of salvation is the Red Sea crossing. 
The picture of sustenance through temptation is that of manna and water from the rock. Then the picture of Canaan is the picture not of heaven. What a terrible thing. If the whole of the Christian life was characterized by the wilderness wanderings, and then heaven was the end of it. What a terrible thing if the metaphor for the whole of the Christian life was 40 years of wandering in rebellion until you died off in the wilderness. That's not the Christian life. That is for some people, but it's not supposed to be. That's what Paul is warning about, right? That's the whole warning. The warning is enter into his rest so that you're not wandering in the wilderness for, for your entire life. D tap into the blessings that God has, in, uh, has, has ordained for you. How many Christians get to the edge of, Christian, uh, of, of, of the, the victorious Christian life and say, but I loved Egypt so much, and they end up wandering in the wilderness of this world, not really in this world, but not in the promised land for their entire life, and they never get to reap the benefits and the joy joy of the Christian life. That's the warning that we're dealing with here. That's the, the wanderings. That's the promised land. That's what we're dealing with. The picture of, the Can uh, of Canaan is the picture of the victorious Christian life. The wilderness wanderings is the picture of a Christian who had come through the sea, who had been, who has been saved, but decides to reject the sustenance and the way of his redeemer, and so wanders in this middle ground, this place where God is still, still, still sustaining, right? The manna is with them for 40 years. The rock follows them, and that rock was Christ, but they could have been drinking milk and eating honey, and instead they're drinking water and eating manna. God never intended that for them. He'll give it to them. He'll sustain them. And many Christians live in this place. You're sustained. You're sustained on water and you're sustained on manna because you are refusing to enter into the land of milk and honey. You're refusing to, as we've talked about this morning, bring your thoughts into captivity to Christ. You're refusing to yield to God's way. You're holding out for yourself. You're, you're holding on to yourself. And so God says, all I can give you is water and manna. But if you enter in, I'll give you milk and honey. Canaan represents the Christian who, sustained by God through trial and temptation, enters into the rest of Christ, victorious Christian living, walking in the Spirit, abiding in Christ, so that while enemies still exist and even surround, we live in harmony, joy, and peace in the rest that God has always intended for His people. And if this is the picture of the Exodus, as Paul presents it metaphorically, according to 1 Corinthians 10, then when Paul spends a chapter and a half exhorting and warning the believers in Hebrews about their relationship with God, and he uses the entrance of Canaan as a definitive metaphor for what he is attempting to express, and we would expect this because he's teaching to a Hebrew audience here, right? There is no reason for us to assume that Paul is warning that we will not enter salvation, that we will not enter heaven. When Israel failed to enter in by faith, the one thing God did not do, take note of this, when Israel failed to enter Canaan, the one thing God did not do is send them back to Egypt. He didn't send them back to Egypt. They wandered in the wilderness. They did not go back to Egypt, Christian. Don't forget that. 
Egypt is the world. It always has been metaphorically in the Bible. God didn't send them back to Egypt. They wandered in the wilderness. They faced consequences for their unbelief, but they didn't get sent back to Egypt. They left. They were done with Egypt. They never saw Egypt again. This is essential. They failed to exercise faith. Their life was spent in waste and ineffectiveness for God. They fell short of the rest that God intended for them, but they did not go back to Egypt. And this is the warning that we find in these verses. Not a warning about the danger of falling away from our salvation, but a, the great danger of, of a very different character. That we, having been baptized by the Spirit of God at the moment of placing our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, having left Egypt to seek for a better country whose builder and maker is God, would spend the remainder of our days longing for Egypt, and so much so that when the victory of God's rest is put in front of our eyes, we don't even recognize it as a victory. We recognize it instead as an impossible task. We see God's blessing as a curse. We see the life that God has chosen for us and all the joys associated with it as little more than self-sacrifice and work. And we reject it and we turn away from it and we walk back into the wilderness and we wander to be overcome by temptations until we are just shriveled up like a raisin. Living in God's sustenance still, but how many of them were overthrown in the wilderness? Instead of living in the land of milk and honey, they're being bit by serpents and killed. Instead of living in the land of milk and honey, they're being destroyed by their enemies. Instead of living in the land of milk and honey under their own fig tree, they're wandering in the wilderness until their shoes fall apart. That's not actually true. He sustained that too. They never got to eat of the milk and honey, though. That was intended for them. It was intended for them. God took them out of Egypt, and they beelined it to Canaan. He didn't have them going all over the place. He gave them the law. He took them up to Canaan. They rejected it. And we will explore this concept more in the coming weeks. But Christian, in grief and sorrow, let me make this plain. A great number of Christians, undoubtedly some in this room, undoubtedly some of the young people here today, are now, or with the young people, will one day live out their days without ever coming into the fullness of God's joy, into all that God actually has prepared for them that love Him in this life, not in, not, and, 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 subsequently in the life to come as it relates to rewards. But we're talking about victorious Christian living. Not because it is not there waiting for them. Not because God has not offered it to them, but because when they see the walls and the giants in the land and the number of enemies and they think back to their, the life of Egypt, they refuse to enter. They would rather limp along, living a hybrid existence of doing things their own way while being minimally sustained by God's emergency rations, then pulling up to the feast table of God's bounties because it would ask a faith of them that they simply have no stomach to exercise because there's too much self stuck in you 
There's too much you that you don't want to yield. And over the next several weeks, the cry that will come out of this pulpit will be one exhorting you to take hold of everything that God has for you, to claim it all as your own, by faith, through submission, in love for the one who brought you out of Egypt. Like Joshua and Caleb did so many years ago, where those 10 spies were saying, we have to turn back, and they begged the people, no, let's go and take what is ours. It's a good land. It's everything God promised us. Go get it. The Christian life is not necessarily a life of ease. It's not necessarily a life of material plenty. It's not necessarily a life of a bunch of friends. But here's the thing. The Christian life is designed to be and can be for all who are in Christ, a life of rest. And if that rest is not yours, it ought to be. It can be. And by God's grace, it will be. Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray for God's people. I, I pray that this message would have been clear. There's so much information there. And... Um, I, I pray that the distractions and getting lost in my notes and whatnot did not um, confuse the message. Pray that God's people would labor to enter into that rest, knowing with full confidence, as best we can, that that rest is not heaven that we're laboring unto, but that rest is something which you have intended for us in this life. Help us not to be weary in well-doing. Help us not to faint in our minds. And Father, I pray that we would root out of our lives this insidious God of self that seeks to strip from us the land of milk and honey and leave us eating only manna and drinking only water. May you be pleased in our response this evening. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.